Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie. Morning, Annie. Morning, listeners. G'day, Marcus. How are you? Yeah, going well, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I think spring has sprung. We've actually been getting lovely weather. And uh, a bit of rain as well, which is not a bad thing. Uh, you went off to the Coolaroo uh, rally that we were talking about last Saturday. Tell us about what happened. Yeah, last Saturday morning, uh, as you just mentioned, the Coolaroo rally out in the uh, Broadmeadows district. It was at uh, Glass Recovery Services and it was a rally against the toxic fires and toxic waste dumps. As listeners would know, we've been covering it for the last oh, five or six months about the spate of toxic fires that have been going on in Broadmeadows for the last oh, three or four years, year in, year out. Well, so, it's an indicator that the uh, waste management issues in uh, our state and probably whole of Australia and probably the entire world uh, are really in focus. And uh, well, you brought us back a report, so we'll go straight to that report on the Solidarity Breakfast 3CR this morning. Uh, I speak on behalf of the Broadmeadows Progress Association. It's a resident group that has been in existence for the past 46 years. Like many, like many here today, our members have had numerous battles involving community safety versus commercial interests. New Farm, Faulkner in the late 1960s against their emissions from their production of Agent Orange, which later caused many cancer clusters. The removal of asbestos from the Blue Harris trains in Somerton with no covering. Uh, the continuous battle to close the Tullamarine liquid waste dump with its fumes, its fires and resulting cancer clusters. And just for interest, in 1980, 800 Broadmeadows residents demonstrated outside Parliament House opposing the government's intention to allow a liquid waste dump in Camp Road. This was 40 years ago, and Hansard, on that day, April the 1st, when they were debating this issue, MPs raised concerns about, uh, about barrels of liquid waste, what they called trade waste, stored around Melbourne, and the need for in in uh, incinerators and a plan to address the growing waste problem. This is 40 years ago. So where are the incinerators? Where's the plan that would have prevented today's waste management problems? With all these issues over the years, we as residents have learnt 
that the nature of commercial enterprises does not change. They will do whatever they can get away with. Bradbury and SKM have shown they have no regard for the welfare of the community, as they have no regard for the safety of their workers. As was said, even Minister Lily D'Ambrosio had to admit that SKM was a rogue enterprise. Criminal would have been a better description. Over the past years, Bradbury, SKM and White have flourished in the commercial environment of self-regulation and government lack of will to exercise their policing powers. And we, the community, are the collateral of successive government's capitulation to the interest of commercial enterprise. Waste management has been developing problem since 1980 with no real attention by government. So now we have a crisis, as has been said, thousands of tonnes of waste in warehouses and in containers on the walls, millions of litres of discarded liquid, piles of glasses we can see behind, and fires that endanger the lives of the community. Now we know what's been going on. Public awareness is developing. It is this developing community awareness that will bring about change. The formation of the Anti-Toxic Waste Alliance is a reflection of public concern. We urge all of you to join the Alliance, support their actions, and we need to turn the tide in the interests of community welfare. Thank you, Sonia and John. Just now ask Ben Davis, the State Secretary of the Australian Workers' Union, to tell us the workers' perspective on, on all of this. Thank you. It's lucky for me, given the wind, that I don't speak from notes. <laughs> if you need any evidence that this is an industry that isn't working, that this is a workplace that needs to be cleaned up now, you need to look no further than behind us. That hill which has almost got to the point where it needs its own postcode. It's not dirt, it's glass. It stretches around behind the building and it's been there for years, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And if a fire gets into that, and it takes a bit of heat to get glass to, to melt and to catch fire, fire gets into that, it's not stopping anytime soon. And I don't accept the proposition that the EPA don't have the resources or that WorkSafe don't have the resources. To, to clean this place up. What they lack is the will. What they lack is the ticker. It's not right that AW members who come here to work, inside here, next door at SKM at their sibling facility, at Laverton and Geelong, AW members who came to work before it burnt down at Bradbury, have to ask themselves at the start and end of each day, am I gonna get to go home in one piece? That's not right. You've seen the photos on social media. The place is a death trap. You've seen the photos. The place is a fire trap. You've seen the photos. The industry's not working. The regulators aren't working. The government's response is at best tardy, at best. And meanwhile, we wait. We wait for the next fire. We wait for the next disaster. We wait for the next worker to be put into hospital, as happened at Bradbury, as happened here in 2017. And meanwhile, Government and regulators sit back and wait for it to happen. And it's not good enough. And that's why we are here today. And that's why it's so good to see all the community groups represented. That's why it's so good to see the friends of Mooney Ponds Creek and the friends of Mary Creek as well. 
Because here's the thing, 200 metres the other side of the fence line is the Merlinston Creek. Do we really want Merlinston Creek to go through what Stony Creek went through after the West Footscray fire? No, we don't. So enough, 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 enough fiddling whilst Rome burns. This place needs to be cleaned up. It needs to be cleaned up now. It's not part of the Court of Mentha administration. It's a sibling company of SKM. And they cannot just allow it to stay like this. It's a death trap for people that work here and potentially it's a death trap for the community. So well done all of you for coming out this morning. This is important and you need to keep doing what you're doing so that together we can get the EPA and WorkSafe, the state government to fire up and get this death trap sorted out once and for all. Thank you. Thank you. And as we all know, when these death traps go off in flames, who are the people who have got the job of trying to keep it, get it under control? Peter Marshall, State Secretary. Uh, it's the wind, it's blowing my notes around. Uh, of the United Firefighters Union to say a few words now. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'll just say a very uh, few quick words. Uh, great to see the community groups out here and that's uh, what will change these things is community action. Just a couple of facts. Because of the unscrupulous operators with these to toxic waste dumps, we've had 30 young firefighters whose lives have been changed forever. In fighting these fires and protecting the community, they have been exposed unnecessarily to toxic waste, toxic plumes that have changed their lives. Fortunately, there's laws, new laws coming that will incarcerate unscrupulous operators in jail where they should be because of their irresponsible actions. And I want to say this very clearly, that if firefighters are unsafe, the community is unsafe. So therefore, action must be taken to ensure that there is a penalty that will make them accountable. And that penalty should be incarceration, no less. Keep up your campaign and well done.
Captain Danny boy, and as you water, close this water, that's an order, Danny boy. There you go. Good report, Marcus. So they came, a couple of things came out of the Coolaroo rally, didn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there was a couple of uh, motions um, passed at the end of the rally. I'll just bring them up now and I'll, I'll read them out for the listeners. Um, and reminding people that uh, there was a rally last Saturday outside the uh, uh, glass, so-called rec- uh, recycling factory down at uh, Coolaroo, and uh, there was a rally. And as you heard, uh, union people went there because it affects workers and it, of course, affects the community. Yeah, so the, the first motion was we demand that the Andrew, Andrews government takes immediate and decisive action to make the glass recovery services site fire safe. This site was proven in the Broadmeadows Magistrates Court on the 22nd of August 2019 as being extremely dangerous and warranting an immediate clean-up response because it represents a catastrophic fire risk. Move in, clean it up and then build a company afterwards. And the second motion uh, passed at the rally was we also demand that within two weeks of receiving this request, the EPA's Resource Recovery Audit Task Force informs the community through this alliance of all other sites they have identified as being high fire risk, where these sites are located and what immediate interventions they are doing to make them fire safe. And uh, there was a response from the EPA? Uh, yeah, the, uh, Kathy Wilkinson, Dr. Kathy Wilkinson, the CEO of, uh, of, e- of the EPA, uh, responded to the alliance yesterday saying that in the next week or so she would uh, more formally uh, respond. So we Get await. Get back to them. Yeah, she's going to look into <laughs> it. And uh, we await her response. Oh, there you go. Well, good o. Uh, we'll just remind uh, people for her listeners of 3CR and. Uh, Solidarity Breakfast, that uh, the station still needs to make $18,000 to reach its target for the Radiothon. And uh, if you're ready to donate, this is how you do it. Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au. Or call us with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to.
3CR with Annie and Marcus on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we've got Richard on the line. He's from uh, Defend Lake Knox group and uh, you've uh, we've got you online because uh, we want to talk to you about what's going on with Lake Knox. People may not actually know very much about it, Lake Knox but what we're seeing is a whole range of uh, public lands being impinged upon by development and uh, we'd like to know about what's going on in the, uh, would you call it the east or northeast? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Tell yes. us all so, about it. Well, the uh, Lake Knox is at the bottom of the hill, which was the former horticultural research centre, and they used to grow things like strawberries and try and make better uh, plants. Um, and so that now has gone, and so the government is looking to sell the land off. Much of the land will be developed into housing and commercial, especially along Burwood Highway. Are you sure they're selling it? Because in your document you say about transferal. That's not quite the same thing. Well, it's gone to Development Victoria, which is a quasi-arm of the government, who then are looking to develop that land and then presumably sell it in some way, whether they sell chunks of it or whether they sell it directly to to people, you know, their houses or whether they sell it to developers. I'm not sure how that arrangement goes. Yeah, but that's interesting, um, isn't it? It could be a bit like the way they're dealing with public housing where they are actually not getting a market value, I mean, another issue, but not getting mm. market value for the land, but actually doing some sort of transferal because of some other policy framework that they have. Yeah, so we haven't gone into that too much because um, the development's just taking place everywhere as uh, across most of Melbourne. Um, and even though it's changing the very suburb in which we live, our fight is mainly at the bottom of the hill. There, There's a, uh, a creek running along on a bike track and adjoining that on the land, on the old develop, uh, um, horticulture research area, is a lake and it was built as part of the research um, land to collect water and so on. They probably used in watering, but it's been there for a long, long time and it's developed its own ecosystem. So, you know, uh, water birds have brought plants and stuff in and quite a few of the plants are um, on Knox's rare and threatened list, plant list, and also it's home to water birds, especially the blue-billed duck, and we're looking to save that lake. Now, Development Victoria have said they'll build a new wetland, um, but, you know, we just want to make sure that the current lake is saved, despite what they've said, because 
we get told a lot of times, trust us, you know, we'll make sure everything's okay, and then often it's not. So it's about landscaping. They've got this, they'll have this whole sort of idea of uh, how this should be done, but you've pointed out that, uh, and, and I'm assuming what they're saying is, because according to your map, what there's large chunks of development on the lake itself, as well as to the left or right of uh, what is the Department of Environment, in fact. In yeah. fact, you, you actually put it. It's, uh, what is it, Department of Environment versus the Environment? Well, kind of, yeah. I mean, they're, they're saying they will build a big wetland area, but the big wetland area, you know, the new, the new style of wetland is often relatively shallow um, and it tends to, a lot of it will dry out. It won't be deep enough for this bluebill duck, which is a diving duck. So it needs deeper water to to exist, um, and the current lake does that. The bluebill duck has been seen there quite often, and we're very concerned that that duck will no longer be able to um, be around in the new wetland. So we're just saying, look, let's keep this lake. Sure, build your other wetlands as well, but let's keep the lake because of its, you know, all of its uh, ecosystem that's built up over the last fifty, sixty years. So really. In, yep. a, in a sense, what you're really saying is that having a manicured, uh, a, a person-made arrangement, environmental, decorative wetlands, effectively, uh, doesn't actually is actually impinging on what nature actually requires. Well, it may not. It, it may not give us the, what we've currently got because deep water lakes are not common in this area, and so we've got one here. So <clears throat> why would you tinker with that and perhaps end up with something that's, you know, not what we've got now? So keep what we've got. And sure, build another wetland, that would be great. But unless you can convince us that, you know, you can do a much, much better job, don't remove what's already there. What's already there is working and works well, so don't tinker with it. Now, the Department of Environment has its own... Um Done, done research into what is becoming an endangered species in Victoria when you talk about the blue-billed ducks. It's got, it's got uh, provisions about the way people should be behaving towards the uh, blue-billed duck. That's correct, isn't it? Uh, yes, I believe so, yep. What, what do they say they should be doing? Um, I'm not sure. They haven't, I haven't seen any of that material as such, um, so I'm not sure. Well, it was is listed in, and the department's own action statement for the duck re- recommends. I do know, uh, recommends ensuring important breeding sites are secured from further environmental degradation and the protection, enhancement, and restoration of key sites and parks, reserves, and private land. So they actually have a uh, duty to deal with. This issue. So, what has been their response to your community action? Well, as with well, we've dealt mainly with development Victoria environment. Victoria have not really communicated with us really at all. So, all this has been with development Victoria. So, they're the ones who are you know working on developing the site, and so they're they're the ones that are leading the. We're trying to lead the discussion, but we don't want to be involved with them unless Lake Knox stays on the discussion table. But there's also other things like turtles and stuff in the lake that, you know, 
we're very concerned about, that if the lake is filled in and gone, then where will the turtles go? So it's just a whole range of different things, the whole ecosystem. That's really but interesting in, because what you're saying is that that land, if I'm correct, that land belonged to, was under the auspices of the Department of Environment. It's mm-hmm. now being passed over to mm-hmm. Development Victoria. Yep, okay, that's correct. Yep. So uh, they're the ones who are the ones who are supposed to be dealing with it. Now, this has put the Department of Environment at arm's length to any issues that are related to the environmental uh, outcomes for Knox Lake. Uh, Yeah, that's what you're saying. Now, um, you're trying to bring it back to the Department of uh, Environment, aren't you, by having a a little uh, rally, maybe not a little rally, maybe a bigger rally, on Monday. Well, that's right. They've still got an office at the top because it's originally all their land and they own still a chunk of it up on Burwood Highway where they've got their um, offices for uh, much of Melbourne. And so we're going, there's going to be a rally at that point just to bring it home to them that, you know, maybe they should be involved as well. But it gives us a point for rally, rallying, and it's on Burwood Highway, which is a very um, busy road. Yeah, but sure it brings is. It, it brings it to the, to the general public as well that, you know, we are concerned because Lake Knox is very hidden. A lot of people who live here don't even know that it's there. Um, so it just gives us a rallying spot where lots of people can see what we're doing. And so that's at uh, 609 Burwood Highway, Knoxville. And what time? Uh, Midday on Monday. On Monday, yeah. Yeah. And uh, the other thing I wanted to ask was, uh, you're part of a a group, aren't you? So tell me about the group. Okay, so the... The, there's a range of people involved. So I'm actually in the Knox Environment Society and we're sort of an umbrella group for a whole lot of environmental stuff going on in Knox. And uh, a few people started the Save Lake Knox group um, and we've been working with them and, I mean, we're part of it along with a lot of friends groups um, who are very concerned about the loss of open space and important um, environmental um, places in this area because, you know, now, especially the government just sees a whole lot of open space that they own as, you know, a good chance to build houses. So we've had a number of fights with the government over open space and Save Lake Knox is just a group of people who are just trying to say we've had enough of this and we just want to keep what we've got. Thank you very much for talking to us today, Richard. Uh, no worries. We'll watch this in with keen interest. So we certainly, we certainly will. Yeah. Uh, so twelve uh, on Monday outside yep. uh, the DELWP, the Department yes. of Land, what Water, is it? Planning, Department Offices. of Environment, Land, Water, and Planning. I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of lots of letters. Yep. Lots of letter. Lots of letters. Lots of. Uh, people so hopefully we'll get a good turnout and we've got a um, petition as well so if anyone wants to go to the Knox Environment Society website then they can get a link and go and sign the petition as well we're just heading up towards uh, 8,000 people to sign our petition and we're hoping to get to 10,000. Thanks very much. All right thank you very much for your time. Sitting here in limbo 
on a Saturday morning's never a bad thing. And we're back on Solidarity Breakfast and now we're joined by Danny Hill uh, from a brand new union. He's the General Secretary of the Victorian Ambulance Union, the VAU. Uh, welcome to the program, Danny. Good morning to both of you. Cheers. Um, firstly, Danny, can you tell us how and why uh, the new union was formed? Yeah, sure. Look, it's a long story. Essentially, um, the ambulance union was always a part of the United Voice Union, and uh, it, it was originally a standalone union, the Ambulance Employees Association, which amalgamated with United Voice back in 1993, when a lot of the smaller unions were, I suppose, uh, amalgamating with others. And since then, so for about 25 years, we've been with United Voice. And then, um, obviously, the, the merger um, come along between the National Union of Workers and United Voice. Um, and I guess for our members and for our state council that led, and, and um, I suppose just for your listeners, I was the Secretary of Ambulance Employees Australia um, while it was with United Voice. Um, 
and I guess it was a uh, um, probably a, there was a few causes of concern for us, and uh, we did right to United Voice leadership to try to be uh, included in the discussions. And, and look, we saw it as a good thing that that we could probably use it as an opportunity to strengthen our section, the ambulance section. Um, but essentially, from our point of view, um, we probably weren't consulted uh, with in the way we would have liked to have been. And uh, the sort of information came to us that we're actually being removed from the rules altogether. Can can you uh, explain to us a bit about that? (laughs) I I was quite interested in that. I mean, uh, in the Mm. psychology of uh, a small union or association getting into an amalgamation, you know, United Voice, it seems strange, you know, because that was the MISO's union that the ambulance uh, drivers would be in that union. But... um, well, it was in all the. It, 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 the, the reason that occurred is that um, the MISO's union did represent the. So United Voice previously, as you state, was the Miscellaneous Workers Union, and went through a number of name changes, but did represent paramedics and ambulance workers in the Northern Territory, Western Australia, and Queensland. So it, it back in the nineties, it was actually an appropriate fit to to merge with the larger union that was already representing. Ambos in other states. So, um, but as part of that merger, the, the separate union, the Ambulance Employees Association, kept itself um, kept its identity um, alive through the United Voice rules. It still had a section of rules that gave it. Um, I, I think what made our union great was that we had a very strong state council and very strong member leadership team that was written into the rules. And they were very proud of it. We're all very proud of our state council positions. I was a, as a paramedic, I was also a state councillor. And you were very proud to, to have like a, a, a position that you had to go through an AFC election to to get. So the, the And original... so when you say that, what you're talking about is that the ambulance section had had its state council. <laughs> you're not talking about the United Voice state council, are no, you? No, that's correct. It yeah. had its own, an ambulance. An ambulance state council, and we had about forty state councillors from across the state that represented. So, so we had our delegate structure, and then above that, we had our state council structure, and that was really the leadership group of our union. So, you know, when we fought big battles like the Code Red battle and and all those um, industrial uh, battle wars that we fought, it was it, um, it was our state council that really determined as a, as a united group determined. Uh, the, the direction of it. So it was a very democratic model and, and it was part of, I suppose, what gave us such high density. We had about 98% density amongst the operational staff. So so uh, the change to that they're talking about now, United Voice going in, uh, uh, amalgamating with the NUW, means that you're going to be more fully absorbed. Well, they, they cut us out of the rules. They, they removed us from the rules altogether. And um, obviously that was something we weren't happy about. Now, they since put us back in because we protested quite strongly and they since put us back in the rules. But I think by that stage, um, the relationship had probably soured. So uh, we had a number of our state councillors, really good, really dedicated state councillors, resigned their positions from uh, United Voice. And um, in the background, unbeknownst to, to the rest of us who were still there, about 10 of them were setting up what is now the VAU. And... Uh, recruited about 2,000 people to it in a very short space of time. And I guess it highlighted to us the um, the direction our members wanted to go. They didn't want to be part of a big super union, and many members will. And I noticed that it's been voted up. It's at a high vote rate, and, it, and 
um, you know, a lot of people are, are in favour of it um, and, and good luck to them. Congratulations to them. But for our members, they wanted a, an ambulance-specific union not to be part of a, you know, a, a super union. And, um, you know, we... And really, I, from, from my point of view, um, I'm of the same mind. And I think that, uh, you know, there is a time and a place for a, a massive union and there's a time and a place for a very... Um, small but equally powerful and equally influential union that's dedicated to particular industries, particularly in emergency services where um, often it, it's difficult to... Uh, I, I find that the, um, you know, sometimes the organised well, approach... Well, the issues. The issues. Yeah, that's right. It's very specialised. And, and for the members, um, you know, the issues that really resonate with them will be... Um, you know, uh, administering ketamine to an intoxicated and violent patient. You know, with respect to both of you, I'm sure if I asked you to talk broadly on um, casual conversion clauses in enterprise agreements, you would that would be your bread and butter. You would talk about it very effectively, but it wouldn't be the issues that uh, are as important to paramedics at any one time or police at any one time. And talking about those things um, confidently and credibly in the public eye you really need someone who has an ambulance background. And uh, so really, I think that's sort of where our members went. And um, we, uh, we, you know, we all resigned our positions. Uh, there was a day where all of us en masse resigned our positions. It was a, a very uh, stressful day, but um, the VAU was formed off the back of that and uh, started recruiting members. And, and our first day of recruitment was the 1st of July, and we took a 1,000 members in the first day. Um, and since then, we're almost up to uh, 3,800 members now. So with so, the ambulance workers um, <coughs> opting to go it alone through the Victorian Ambulance Union, uh, Danny, this will help keep uh, the ambulance workers keep their own identity as opposed to being part of yeah, the super union and one which covers uh, vastly different industries and many, many different industries. Yeah, that's right. And I think you have to listen to what... Um, you have to listen very carefully to your membership and, and what sort of union they want and... You know, even on a on a day to day basis, when you comment publicly on on certain issues, they want those issues to be relevant to them, not just commenting on on um, you know issues like issues that might be relevant to a broader workforce of one hundred fifty thousand people might not resonate necessarily with a, a particular part of the membership. So, you know, the Ambos uh, for a long time have paid some of the highest union membership fees, certainly in United Voice, but probably around Australia. And they wanted to see that that was going directly to their industry. So, um, you know, really the, um, the the sudden influx of membership, well, I think, you know, 3,000, you know, 1,000 members in the first day and 3,800 over the past two months, I think is an indication of, of, of where they want to be. And um, and they're very active. They're, you know, they're really proudly, um, you know, we've, we've just got a heap of stickers done and a heap of T-shirts done. We're almost, um, you know, the, the stickers are almost gone. Um, you know what I mean? So everyone's very proud to be displaying the, the new banner, the VAU banner, and they seem to be very, um, you know, pr- probably much, probably, uh, it, it's probably surprised me. Um, I, I suspected for some members they would see it as, oh, yeah, we're changing providers as if we're changing electricity companies, but they're very proud of, of what's happened and very grateful, and everywhere we go we're being, you know, the, the state council, the leadership are being, thanked and, and praised for it in, in probably a way that's actually quite surprising. How did, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, how does that affect your connections with the other states and the other ambulance uh, paramedic services in Australia? Uh, that, 
That's an interesting question. Um, look, I, I guess it's the. Um, it's fair to say that United Voice are not happy and um, and are disappointed with what's happened. And we will aim to rebuild any relationships. We have a, a council called the National Council of Ambulance Unions that we didn't attend this year, and we made a decision not to attend. We were, um, <coughs> excuse me, we were. Um, uh, you know, we, we were there for, for every year, but we didn't attend this year because we didn't want there to be any bad blood. But, look, we have great friendships with the other states, um, including with some of the, the United Voice states, but I think it's going to take... I'd, I'd imagine that things might take a little while to settle. Um, it, it's interesting. We have actually had paramedics from the other states come across and try to join us and say, can you represent us in the other states? And we're just focused on our membership in Victoria. We're not interested in any sort of Australia-wide move, but certainly we've had people, um, you know, interested to see what, what will happen and uh, um, and whether whether something similar will happen in their state. And um, but you know, we, we continue to work with with the other states and uh, and with other unions, and we've had a lot of support from them. And, and in some uh, circles, the union's been uh, referred to as a rebel union. How does that sit with you, Danny? I love it, Marcus. I absolutely love those things. And, um, you know, man, if you're, if you're not called a rebel or a rogue a couple of times in your career, then I, I just think you're not trying hard enough. It, it, it's as long as you're doing it for the right reasons. And, um, you know, I've been called a thug in Parliament during the Code Red campaign, and um, and that's just because we were making them hurt. And, um, you know, by, by by telling the truth about the state of the ambulance service at that time. That's so right. We're at a badge of honour. You wear it as a badge of honour, absolutely. So if people call us a rogue union, then that's absolutely fine by me. The, the important thing is that our members know that we're professional. Um, we, you know, we, we're really focused on our servicing of our members to make sure they get a really good service, and we can in, we can improve, um, you know, the, the the staffing levels within our office, so we give our members a really good experience when they they call us up. Um, so if, yeah, look, I'd, I'd almost get that tattooed. And, and I guess it means you don't get lost in the wash. No, that's right. Um, no, certainly not. It, it, you're right. It does attract attention. It does attract attention. And um, and I think I think there's it, it, to me there's a broader issue there where um, you know some unions I suppose uh, you know you, you do have to take time to really listen carefully to your membership and make sure that what you're saying is resonating. With your membership, and um, <coughs> and there's been other unions come out in support of the uh, Victorian Ambulance Union. Oh yeah, yeah, quite a lot. Um, so this week alone, we've been working quite a lot with the um, police association over a number of issues. So we're very close with the police association, and uh, so we've been working quite a lot with them. We've had a number of unions that have, have offered us uh, support, and. Um, you know, for some of us, there's a lot of issues that we deal with collectively. Are there, are there other unions other than the police association that you can mention? Well, we're working at the moment. I, uh, the, I'd have to mention VARPA, the Victorian Allied Health Professionals Association, are actually allowing us to have a little bit of um, accommodation uh, at the moment while we're sort of transitioning to our own office because we, we had to leave everything behind and start again from scratch. So um, they've been fantastic. Um, the RBTU um, gave us a public mention of support uh, just recently with regard to um, the occupational violence issues, so that was fantastic. And, uh, you know, really, really not a lot's changed. Like, we still turn up to the same 
committee meetings with government. And look, government and Ambulance Victoria, to their credit, have, have just been business as usual because they know that it's the members that, that they are responding to and we are the elected representatives of those members. So um, really, they have to deal with it. And if they think we're a rogue union, then good luck to you, but tough. You're still going to have to deal with our members. Could you ever see the day, Danny, when all the emergency services workers are represented by the one union? Uh, that gets asked quite a lot. I don't think so. I think we're actually better. We, we, we do have an um, emergency services association where we deal with matters that are equally important between us, the police association and the firefighters, where we deal with things like superannuation and uh, other, other uh, you know, the legislative change that affects emergency service workers. I don't actually think it would work very well. And I think we're all in agreement with that. And um, I think we've uh, we've all sort of jokingly said, because that gets raised all the time with us, and we've sort of all jokingly, the secretaries were all said to each other, look, we love each other, but we don't want to get married. And um, so I, I don't really think it would actually be um, an effective union. You sort of need to keep really the, the medical... Um, side of things is very separate to the, the, the justice side of things and um, and the work that firefighters do. So I think it, it would probably be best that we keep it separate but continue to work strongly together. Okay. Is there any, any plans to affiliate to Trades Hall or the, the ACTU? Uh, yeah, look, yes. Um, certainly with, with Trades Hall. Um, absolutely. Beyond that, I'm not so sure. Um, but basically what we've said with regard to any affiliation is that it will be determined by the membership. Yep. And we want to make sure the members are, um, are, are um, you know, have their say in affiliation. I think that's a really important point. And that was one of the things I was going to say earlier is that, you know, our members didn't want to be affiliated to a political party. They have enormous um, uh, respect for the current government in the work they've done around ambulance. But ambulance becomes a political football at election time. And, uh, you know, being politically affiliated... Um, and look, I'm politically affiliated myself. I'm a member of the ALP. So is Olga Bartosek, the Assistant Secretary, and, and we make no um, apologies for that. But that doesn't mean that the union uh, should be politically affiliated. That would be done on a vote of the entire membership. Because so, your membership is actually across the whole of Victoria, and that, of course, into exactly. uh, the rural parts of Victoria, and uh, that's quite commonly conservative. Yeah, we have very politically diverse uh, membership and and I think that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing if you have a politically diverse mem- membership or a diverse group of people who choose to be unionised. And you know who says that um, only someone who's uh, you know a, a Labor supporter should be a union member? It should be open up to everyone. And you're right, we have people who uh, are working on farms one minute, then responding to emergencies the next minute. And you know for them, they may affiliate with a, a you know or, or direct their um, their preference to a, a different political party than you and I would. So, um, But we can still represent them. We can still have them in, as union members and still deliver um, good services and support to them. And what's needed um, to create a new union? I mean, what are some of the challenges that uh, people would face? Uh, uh, look, part of me wants to say a death wish. Um, but, uh, <laughs> You're look, a paramedic, man. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, look, it's a it, it's it's a huge amount of work, and it's not something that's done lightly, and it's stressful, and it's hard, and there's a lot involved in it, and um, it, it's not something you would ever do lightly. But really, what it comes down to is what do the members want? And 
you know, I mean, we we were given on. I remember it very clearly. We were told that the the state councillors who had resigned and who were in the process of setting up the you know what is now the VAU said we've got two thousand people in support of it. Um, it sort of hit me like a bit of a freight train, and I sort of thought, well, I I can't ignore that, and um, you know, we we have to. We, we, we can't just sort of continue doing what we're doing and pretending that's not there. We, we have to respond to that. So really, I think that that's the key ingredient is the members have to be on board with it and, and have to be driving it. And, uh, you know, from day one, they were, you know, not only well and truly behind this, they were in front of us saying, when can we do this? When can we sign up? When can we develop this new union that's so exciting? And, uh, you know, we were really, I suppose, to a degree... Some will say we let it, but I think we we were following the membership, and um, and I think without that, that don't bother um, because it it just never worked. Okay, and uh, yeah, what are what are the main issues confronting your members, Danny? Uh, so, look, occupational violence is obviously a big one for us, and there's been a lot over the past fortnight with regard to occupational violence. So, we're doing a, a, a power of work on that. You'll, we'll be out there probably lobbying government. Um, and, and all political parties around uh, the exposure of emergency workers to occupational violence. Look, there's a number of issues. We're in enterprise bargaining with government at the moment. We haven't missed a day of bargaining throughout this transition. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd say that that's generally moving along reasonably well. Um, there's a few sticking points, but, you know, I, I think that, um, I think that you know, we're likely to deliver some quite good improvements to you know mainly to conditions to, to paramedics but again that'll be up to up to them um, and that there's always a host of issues we have uh, the, the the ambulance industry at the moment is under intense scrutiny from uh, organizations like safer care Victoria and IBAC and um, you know it, it's created a real shift in um, the scrutiny on paramedics the scrutiny on ambulance workers has never been higher and that becomes um, you know, very, very intense and very stressful. And, uh, you know, we're on a day-to-day basis, we're representing members for things that, in, you know, people have 20-20 vision in hindsight. It's not so easy to make decisions in an emergency. And the decisions a paramedic make in an emergency are often very, very carefully scrutinised and um, pulled apart after the fact. And we spend a hell of a lot of time helping our members explain decisions they've made, that, where we say they've made the right decision, but someone comes along later and says, Oh, you could have done it this way. You could have done it that way. Um, you know that that that's probably a you know quite a common issue that we have to deal with. Thank you very much for talking to us this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Daddy. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on three CR eight double five AM Community Radio. Also streaming on three CR dot org dot au. Free West Papua Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. Solidarity Bricky Team Listener, when the government, which promises to introduce the recommendations of the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Financial Commission, has listened to the intense lobbying of the industry that the recommendations will make life far more difficult.
For its customers, that is, not for itself. It's a selfless industry, but thanks to the lobbying, the post-con mission industry will look a hell of a lot like the pre-con mission industry, showing the government's shared concern for the industry's customers. And this week, the Minister for Such Things, Jane Exhume, the bodies, said the government, quote, is committed to restoring confidence in the financial system, including building trust in financial advice as a true profession. Presumably as opposed to an untrue profession, which the Royal Commission proved it is, but after a bit of lobbying by the True Blue Aussie Independently Owned Financial Ripoffs Profits Association, Jane proved her commitment by extending a recommended upgrade of professional standards and qualifications to 2026. The association thanked Jane for responding. I'll bet it did, but said, direct quote, It's a very good start, but we don't think it goes far enough. The government should give further leeway to advisers. Uh, Not far enough, Peter. He's the Ripoff Association's executive director. A very important title. Certainly not. Under this welcome concession, we can only rip off until 2026, unless we can come up with something innovative. Uh, Like charging the debt? Uh, Yes, yes, that sort of thing. As it is to believe, even the Tribune Aussie Capitalist Review described the heavy lobbying as trying to water down the reforms, which is having a lot more success, 100% a lot more success than goody-goody, black armband, long-haired, commie, wooden worker and iron lots lobbying for a bit of compassion toward Tamils being sent home to face the punishment for being Tamils, including two Tribune Aussie citizens. Which brings me to a a seeming dilemma giving me some difficulty, and I'm hoping you can sort it out for me, listener, because we would never suggest so intelligent and great a man as the Minister for keeping us secure and overseeing concentration camps, razor wire and sink the boats, Constable Peter Duffer, would be contradictory or even, dare we say it, hypocritical. But remember we mentioned a few weeks ago the Duff decided to deport two Indigenous Troubluwazis for so upsetting the invaders, born respectably in PNG and New Zealand of an Indigenous parent and brought here as babies, lived here all their lives. But as is the case with these lawless Indigenous people who have no respect for Her Most Gracious Majesty's laws, they emerged from a prison cell to be told that in the interests of Troublewazi security, they had to be sent back to the land of their birth. OK, OK, thank you, Pete, for keeping us secure. But Pete then says the two children born in True Blue Aussie, True Blue Aussie citizens, have to go back to where they didn't come from. Well, not go back because they've never been there. I'm sure there's a simple explanation, but my stupid mind just can't see it. If only Pete could deport altogether those bloody upstart Indigenous people who attempt to stifle progress by frustrating attempts to improve transport, claiming the cultural sacredness of these ancient trees when the roads authorities promised to plant lots of replacement trees. What could be more reasonable and respectful of this pagan culture? Indeed, Vic Roads claims to be the second biggest tree planter in Victoria. It just doesn't mention the ones it destroys along the way. 
On the positive side, the government wants to have that beautiful concrete testament to white sacred sites, the Eastern Freeway, declared a heritage site. So they can build yet another freeway, which will require them to remove lots more ancient trees. But we can be certain they'll plant lots more young trees, which will survive until the new freeway, the new transport panacea, becomes the problem and has to be widened, extended, duplicated. But then they'll plant more... Well, it's all part of the progress these selfish indigenous people are trying to thwart. Another difficulty I'm having, I'm having a few difficulties, debate about vaping e-cigarettes and the concerted lobbying campaign by those contributors to public health, the tobacco companies, to legalise lots of additives like nicotine. The concern for public health tobacco industry telling us its only concern is to prevent people smoking tobacco. A laudable and credible ambition. And these usual suspect pollies supporting big tobacco are saying, libertarian means the state should keep out of these things because what people do with or put into their bodies is their own business. They can do what they like with their body. Fair argument too, other than... And here's the difficulty. I, I then hear many of these same people supporting the tobacco industry argument, great libertarians, declaring women have no right to abortion. The men, mostly men, know what's good for their bodies. Perhaps she could help you with these difficulties, listener. I'm obviously missing something there. Ditto, and again, back in the Duff's department, we mentioned earlier in the year the multi-million contract for refugee services on Manus Island um, to a company whose address was a shack down a dirt track on Kangaroo Island. Well, well, a report this week said the great world corporate KP on the customers MG, consulted at more great expense by the government, recommended the $532 million contract without even checking the company's bank statements and KP on had a business relationship with Powerton, the shanty down the dirt track company and although Powerton was fined more than 1,000 times real figure for quote performance failure, little matters like chronic understaffing allowing it to pocket more and more of the 532 mil, the Dove said he was happy with its performance and extended the contract. Well, yes, he would be happy. After all, keeping the no-proper-papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people as miserable as possible shows sinking the boats is succeeding. Oh, and as KP on and Powerton go on peeing on with billions of public corporate welfare, good news. The government wants the real ripper offers, dole pludgers, to undergo drug tests so they can be prevented from ripping off. No connection, but at a Senate inquiry into the new jobs, former ministers Christopher Payne in there and Julie bash up the workers, well, some of the new jobs and directorships, the ones related to their respective portfolios, new jobs a day or two or a week or two before they left the plush seats, Julie's defence was, I stand by my reputation, Senator. What honesty, damned by her own confession. The perfect timing of the week award to the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world state of Texas following the mass shooting in El Paso a couple of weeks ago and another gun massacre last weekend, exactly one day later, the new gun laws came in, making it easier to massacre your community. People can now carry guns in public anywhere, including in schools, which should work wonders for public safety. 
Well, those who know, know guns don't kill people, and big supremo Donald Trump or the poor has vowed to take strong action against the cause of all these massacres. It's not guns, it's mental illness, he analysed. I am going to ban mental illness. Greatest ban ever, ever. Brave move, because if narcissism and self-delusion reflect mental illness, he's going to ban himself. In which case, Donald, go for it. Anyway, State of Texas, your perfect timing of the week award is on its way. Now, there's also been a fair bit of narcissism and self-delusion across the Atlantic, best summed up by a poly called Boris Atori achieved his ambition for glory, but once he was boss, he found loss after loss, saw his ambition go awry. Okay, I had to pronounce it awry or it wouldn't have rhymed, but we get the picture. That's all we need to say, really, but given the people voted whether to leave or not to leave, perhaps those pollies should consult a dictionary and look up the meaning of leave. Finally, thank goodness we're getting closer to providing the freedoms the usual suspects in the government must have to practice their religion. Many freedoms snatched away from them when the nation turned to sin and atheism and voted for unnatural marriage between unnatural people, critical religious freedoms like baking cakes. Surely good Christian bakers could sue all partners in same-sex marriage for damages for preventing them from going about their lawful business in the praise of the dear baby Jesus. Their discrimination means we must have the right to discriminate against them and claim compensation. The wages of sin is death. The new Freedom of Bill prevents evil people discriminating against good people. Oh, and vice versa, I suppose. We asked that saintly former Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Erica Betts, on the bosses. Uh, well, no, uh, that would be condoning sin against the dear baby Jesus. We must have the freedom to expose atheism, homosexuality, debauchery, wherever it occurs. Sinners generally and religious freedom must give us the freedom to discriminate against these people in the name of the dear baby Jesus. Not to provide that right would be to condone sin. After all, that is a God-given right. And given that all rights are God-given, then those who deny or hate God, hate the dear baby Jesus, by definition, have no rights at all and no rights to have rights. But having said that, we must express our disgust and hatred and discriminate with our renowned Christian love and warmth. Uh, thank you, Eric. Pleasure. Uh, this bill should allow us to get 3CR off the air too. Well, at least this segment's going off the air for another week. Good morning. Red Alert. Numbers are needed at the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japarung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarung traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarung country near Ararat 
or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus. And there's another way you can help. Tell them. Yeah, there's a rally uh, this Tuesday, September the 10th at Victorian Parliament House to save the uh, sacred Jabberong trees. So the rally at Victorian Parliament House this Tuesday, September 10th, 8.30 to midday. There you go. And 3CR will be doing a live cross. But right now on Solidarity Breakfast, we've got Dr Noah Pazil. G'day, Noah. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Annie. How are you? Good. Lots of things have happened since we last spoke to you in your area of concern. One of the things that was most interesting was, of course, the American-Israeli relationship seems to be now under question. Hello? I've been reading... Hello. (laughs) I thought you disappeared. Yeah, no, no. I have this issue for a long time. I used to teach... uh, this has been a controversial issue for many years, obviously. Um, in the mid-2000s, sort of um, there was a book uh, published called The Israel Lobby, which was um, published by two very conservative American IR scholars from Harvard, um, Mersheimer and Wall. Um, just, I can't remember their first names now. It's a while ago. Um, and that caused this huge backlash and claims of anti-Semitism against them. Um, the book became a re- very divisive, and it really signalled that there was no place in U.S. politics, uh, in discourse at all, to question the um, American-Israel relationship. It was off bounds. The, both Democrats and Republicans uh, attacked the book. It really got uh, um, the, both scholars who were mainstream members of the of of academia, and it's, you know, were realists. There was, these were not radicals by any means. In fact, they probably just thought they were stating the bleeding obvious. They, they were. In fact, I mean, their argument was that the Israel lobby, which was made up, and this wasn't anti-Semitic, because they said the Israel lobby was largely made up of a number of different groups. Some small section of it were uh, Jewish Americans with particular political interests, but most of it was evangelicals and um, a group of hardline ideologues, um, neocons. Wow. And, sort of, and so this wasn't, uh, uh, they weren't uh, criticising American Jews for supporting Israel or being disloyal, as Trump recently has suggested. Um, instead, they were saying, look, this sort of group that have come together to uh, protect Israel from any critical uh, scrutiny and to ensure that American support for them occurs regardless is not in America's best interest. That was their argument. Mm. Um, and it, it, as I said, it, you know, it, it really demonstrated, the, the reaction to it really demonstrated that there's no place in um, the US for any discussion at all about this issue. Yes. And the claims of anti-Semitism and, you know, that, that uh, followed the, the two authors and um, people who sort of, uh, you know, sort of tried to promote the book meant that it, uh, it was shut down immediately. Yeah, and, and Australia as a fledgling America, in a sense, that's been similar kind of reactions here. Well, in a way, but I mean, what we've seen in the last month or two is, in fact, I think uh, the opening up of space that wasn't available a decade ago. Um, so when the Repu- uh, Democrat 
um, uh, senators, con- congresswomen, um, were banned from going into the US, uh, sorry, into Israel. Uh, in particular, that moment and the claims of anti-Semitism against them. And then Trump's comments after that, where he talks about um, Jews who voted Democrats as being disloyal, and the sort of response to that has really shown, and, and then the response to it is about, well, we've actually seen a few debates in some of the mainstream uh, media in America about whether the U.S.'s uncritical and unreflective uh, support of Israel is in is the best way forward, and there's actually some space opening up. And I've been following the press in the US and seeing stories regularly that are questioning this claim of anti-Semitism against um, people, key key people who are uh, critical of Netanyahu and Israel's current policy uh, towards the Palestinians. And this has never happened before. Bernie Sanders, who you know, got very close to being the Democrat um, candidate uh, ca- candidate the last uh, election and may have beaten Trump, as some people have uh, speculated, um, has come out recently um, and has, you know, made the point that he's Jewish, um, he votes Democrat, he's critical of Israel, and he's not anti-Semitic. Now, for someone as senior as that to make that point, I- I've never seen that. In um, in the US prior to this, because what you'd say is would be political suicide to do such a thing. Absolutely, and it's not at the moment. So in a way, Trump has actually, I think, um, created the conditions opposite to what he was trying to do, and that oh, is his own conduct, his own attitude towards Israel and to Jewish. I mean, you know, Trump is typically, I think, is. He is anti-Semitic. Yeah, he's anti-Semitic, and he's a supporter and he's an uncritical supporter of Israel, and so and he's got, I mean, you know, he's got Jewish members of his family, but his attitude to Jews and his understanding of Jews is incredibly anti-Semitic. I mean, he he stereotypes them. He's got a very narrow sense of who they are, and in fact, like many Americans. He's not anti-Jewish, he's just anti-Jews in America. So really he's a walking, talking sort of uh, uh, um, litany of uh, stereotypes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the comments he's made recently that have been picked up as um, by uh, commentators around, you know, sort of Jew, Jewish people in America and Jews generally has demonstrated a level of anti-Semitism that deep. You know, sort of anti-Semitism that he might, he's probably not aware of. No, no, that's right. He probably isn't. He yeah. probably just thinks that this is the air that that everyone breathes. You know, his yeah. views about women, his views about yeah. gay people, his views about Jews, all this sort of stuff. Yeah, and yeah. and you got to remember, he's actually a very elderly man. He, he is, and you know, in many ways, he is. Uh, he's a caricature of all the. Um, what we call it, sort of all the um, uh, sort of constructions of masculinity and um, and privilege that, you know, sort of, uh, you know, have been challenged by feminists and, you know, a whole range of other groups over um, a number of years. Um, you know, in many ways he embodies 
I would argue, he embodies the neoliberal persona. He's egocentric. He's narcissistic. Um, he's racist. He's misogynist. Um, you know, in many ways, he is the personification of everything that neoliberal conservatives have been trying to construct as a system for the last... 40 or 50 years. Which is kind of brings us to another very interesting discussion we were having, which is that people focus on the incredibly destructive elements of the economic uh, project that is neoliberalism, and rightly so. But yeah. in some respects, in some battles, it's not about money at all. Uh, it is about power, but it's also about uh, how people see themselves as human beings. Yeah, I mean, there is one strain of neoliberal analysis or criticism that says neoliberalism was always about reconstructing people into homo economicus, economicus, you know, the (laughs) the the rational economic actor. And I think there is an element of that. I've got no doubt about it. Um, But I think there's something deeper there. And so what I've been thinking about over the last, you know, sort of few years, actually, and starting to form more solidly um, in the last few months is that, um, you know, the question that came to me a few years ago is why are neoliberals so fixated on the culture wars? You know, why do we have organisations or, or, or um, groups like the Institute for Public Affairs or the Centre for Interdependent Studies, which are effectively neoliberal think tanks, funded yeah. by big corporates to promote the interests of business? And they go around saying that they're... Um uh, neutral and, you know, academic yeah. in their approach. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, they're about freedom and liberty and uh, free markets and all this sort of stuff. And yet a lot, of, sometimes more of their uh, focus is on identity politics than it is on markets. Um, and so, you know, and this came to me, I had an interview a couple of years ago with, um, I was on a panel and one of the panellists was someone from the IPA. Mm. And we talked about tax and stuff, and, you know, he was pretty measured in most of the talk about economic stuff. I mean, he was far right, and, um, you know, economic his ec- econo- economics was right out of the neoliberal playbook, no doubt about that. But we got onto the issue of um, South, South African white farmers getting this special um, visas, you know, fast-track visas into Australia because of their perilous situation. And, you know, I challenged him on this, and, you know, he went into a frenzy. Now, he wasn't South African as far as I could tell. And so I walked away from that interview going, well, you know, on economic issues, this guy was fairly measured in the way that he promoted his policies. But the minute we got onto identity politics, or what were, you know, questions of identity, he, he you know, he, he became almost, you know, sort of... Um, like a rabid un- dog. Yeah, and so, I, you know, it started me thinking, so I started reading up on this, and... I thought to myself, and I've read, you know, I've read Hayek and um, Rocky and these people who were the original um, cons- sort of creators of uh, neoliberalism back in the ni- late 1930s and 40s. I, be- and so, I hope you had a shower afterwards. Oh, look, you know, it, it is a struggle. But, I mean, you you know, to, to, to understand the world, you've got to understand how your enemies see it as well and, mm. and, and argue it. And... Um, in the process, what and you know, there's no doubt that it was sort of early Cold War focused as well. That their their key concern was how to challenge 
the sort of rise of communism and socialism around the world, and totalitarian sort of fascism as well. But really what they were most concerned with was the creeping power of uh, socialism, um, both intellectually and in policy. But on another hand, I think, you know, the more I read, the more I get a sense that behind this, there was also a real um, resistance or a real uh, focus on preserving the privileges of white male elites like themselves. All these people, I mean, the, um, the sort of the, the institution that's been responsible for their liberal promotion, most responsible for their liberal promotion since the 1940s has been the Mont Pelerin Society, which was created by Hayek and Friedman and these thoughts. Um, in their 70-year history, they've only had one woman um, um, as a key member. I think only one woman director for a couple of years. It is a predominantly, almost exclusively male club, and a male and a club made up of people who are effectively white, privileged males. So as I start to read and think about this, and we think about the rise of neoliberalism in the seventies as a response to the economic situation. What if it was really a response to the rise of uh, women's rights, uh, the third world, civil rights, and the economic element of it was really the way that they were able to preserve and increase the privileges and the sort of the status quo of the privileges of white men, predominantly white white men. So, so what you're saying is talking to their inner insecure child. Well, I mean, again, you know, yes, but if you think about it, why does the, um, you know, why does the uh, unemployed, disenfranchised, low or, or low-paid worker in Ipswich in Brisbane? I'm making up a place outside yeah. of Brisbane. Why does he vote for a neoliberal party? Yeah, that, that doesn't promote his economic well-being. Well, That's he right. Because he relates to their identity politics, not to their economic politics. So, yeah, 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 and you're completely right. I mean, on an, on one hand, uh, trying to evaluate what happened during the last election, so and that rising uh, rise of what I, we're beginning to call the the wrong wing, as opposed yeah. to the right wing, the wrong wing is that um, the sense of dissatisfaction and uh, resentment and fear, in fact, amongst. Yeah, I don't the, think I don't think it is that. No, well, it is, but I think it's something deeper. I yeah. think what it is is if you're a white male in, you know, wherever, um, disenfranchised, a bit alienated, and you're looking at the world and you're looking at your own privileges, you don't have many left. You don't have many economic ones anyway. But the ones you have are bound in being a white male. So you might be dominant in your home. Mm. You know, you're still, the, you're still the master of the home, right? You're still, as you walk through, you go, this is my country, not that blacky country. Yeah. yeah, you've got these ideas about who you are and the privileges you have. And then you turn on the news and some person says, oh, yeah, but, you know, women should have equality with men. And in the back of your head, you're going, this is all I've got left. All I've got left in this world are these few privileges. This idea that I'm a white male, uh, the identity that I have, and that gives me this, these rights. If you take that away from me, what have I got left? Mm, yeah, it's, it's completely correct because the thing about it is, is that um, uh, the uh, 
absolute uh, uh, illegal level of privilege that has been given to uh, white men. Is, yeah. I mean, it's quite clear because uh, ridiculous that uh, the uh, amount of people who are white male in parliament, for example, uh, all these types of things, because it does not reflect our society at all. No, not at all. Not at all. And I, I guess that's the, for me, that's the thing. If, if we start to think of neoliberalism as a cultural project, a project around preserving the privileges of those people in power, um, and we don't see it as an economic project, then maybe we can challenge it differently. Yes. Because cha- challenging it as an economic project hasn't really worked that well. I mean, look at the GFC. We had the GFC. We, a few years later, we were sitting here going, well, that's the end of neoliberalism. And a decade on, yeah. it's probably stronger and more embedded. And, you know, as we have, we've got a government that's got austerity and corporate tax cuts as, as its main policies moving forward. Yeah. Um, and it's waging a war against the poor, as the, the, you know, against um, people on uh, New Start and... Yeah, you know they want to. They want to, he wants to put in a uh, a piece of legislation that means that people on Newstart have to be drug tested. Absolutely. Yeah, this is right out of the neoliberal economic playbook. How outrageous! Uh, um, but so we've been struggling. We've been fighting this thing uh, for forty years on an economic basis, and we haven't got anywhere at all. In fact, we've gone backwards in many ways. It's it's a stronger, more entrenched uh, sort of economic policies around. Uh, look at the US and, and what's happening in Britain, the debacle in, in uh, the UK and, and, and many other places in the world. So maybe if we start fighting it on the basis of identity, then we can start to challenge it differently. And the economic policies that flow from it become more egalitarian. How do we rise? If we t- say that people are equal and we fight it on that basis, it's a much harder, I think it's much harder for neoliberals to stand their ground, because they claim to believe in equality as well. And that's what markets do, they say, is create equality. Well, yeah, okay, fine. But, you know, their their political um, and ideological positions are not equal about equality. Now, and also, markets aren't neutral. No, markets aren't neutral. But let's forget about that debate altogether. That's my argument. Mm. If if we forget about it, if, if we push the economic aside for a while, we focus on the rights of people to, to equality, to all the things that we talk about on the left, and we fight it on ide- I, I, sort of on the grounds of identity politics. How does, what does that mean to neoliberalism? And I don't, yeah. think we've re- I don't think we've really, well, as far as I can tell, we haven't really investigated that properly. Yeah, I don't think so either, and and I I think it's quite extraordinary, and I think that one of the marks of this actually in our political sphere at the moment is this uh, religious, whatever they call it, the religious freedom, whatever it's called, and the other one, which is this attack on unions, this so-called integrity bill. These two things are a perfect example of what you're talking about. Yeah, well, I mean, identity politics is, um, you know, it's not just about... um, uh, our sexual or racial or religious identity. It's also about our identity uh, in terms of, you know, so this whole thing on unions, you know, the, that, you know creating unionists as villains or yeah. people are unemployed as villains, that's part of identity politics as well. Cause exactly. It, you know, it focuses on people's identity and it, it, it creates them as 
you know, second or third class citizens or non-citizens, as in the case of yeah. um, refugees. Uh, you well, know, unionists are criminalising this country these days with such things as the ABCC. If workers stop work following the death of a workmate, you get prosecuted, but a boss can uh, kill a worker and uh, walk free. Absolutely, and you know, I've been I've been looking at quadrant um, back issues. I mean, there've been articles in the quadrant for decades where they they tie, you know, there was an article that I read, came across in the 1980s that claimed that to unearth um, archival um, evidence to 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 show that unions in Australia were, were aiding the Japanese during World War Two. Oh, what? You know, so it's just sort of you know, you know, that's the that's the politics of identity. Yeah. That we've sort of given up ground on in some ways as we fight economic battles, which are really important, but they're not we're not winning them. So I, I guess this has started me thinking about a different approach to defining neoliberalism. And if we define it differently, then how do we approach challenging it differently? Well, that's I guess that's the project I'm interested in at the moment. And because there are a lot of people on the left who feel that fighting identity politics rather than economic politics is um, it's trivial yeah it's trivial it's sort of it's it's a distraction well I actually don't think it is a distraction you know that there is an argument amongst a lot of leftists or a lot of uh, and academics as well that what identity politics is is throwing the cat in I don't know if you've heard that phrase before Mm, yeah you know that when we're talking at a time when there's debate about economic issues that um, disadvantage the poor and, and you know sort of advantage the wealthy. What the um, what conservatives do, or what um, um, uh, you know sort of uh, the wreckers do. The wreckers do is they throw in a cat yeah. to distract people from the main issue. That's I right. actually don't think that's the case. I think the main issue is, in many ways, the identity politics, and that challenging that effectively allows us to then move on to the economic policies that produce better outcomes for people. But, I mm. mean, I, you know, I, this is only very early work for me. Um, I know the neoliberalism stuff and the economic stuff as well, but getting into the identity side of it more deeply um, is something I'm just you know, starting to really focus on, and I'm finding it fascinating. Uh, and, you know, part of my focus is that maybe... Yeah, a lot of people who focus on neoliberalism see the uh, impact on women, on indigenous populations, on the poor um, sort of minorities as a side effect of neoliberal economic policy. Um, I'm suggesting that it's not a side effect, it's in fact the main aim from the very beginning. Well, we're going to have to uh, finish here, but uh, we're extremely interested in this conversation, Noah. Okay, well, I hope to continue it if you're happy to go along with me for a bit longer on it. Yeah, good. Okay. Well, we'll talk, catch up with you in a, in a uh, month's time and we'll right. see what you're up to. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Annie. Good to talk again. Yeah, thanks, mate. That was Dr. Noah Basil. That's a really interesting um, uh, tangent, I'd say. Uh, we're um, maybe not, maybe not a tangent, as he says, maybe the main game. And it's certainly the main game for a lot of people. Uh, it, that's the end of Solidarity Breakfast this morning. We've uh, done quite a few things. We went to... Yeah, we spoke to Danny Hill from the Victorian Ambulance Union, a new union. Yeah, we went to Coolaroo for the rally. Yeah, yeah. We uh, went to uh, save... Lock, uh, 
uh, Knox, Knox Lake, Lake, which is they're gathering outside 609, 609 um, Burwood Highway on Monday, 12 o'clock, to uh, ask the um, Department of Environment what they're doing. And uh, we have uh, had a yarn with uh, Noah. We also, on the way, uh, stopped off with This Is The Week That Was with Kevin Healy. Uh, we're going to go out with a song. Oh, were you going to say anything? Did you have something else to say? Oh, we've just, yeah, we've got the Rally Parliament House this Tuesday, September the 10th, to save the Jabberong trees, yeah, 8.30am. That's right. And uh, it, it goes to 12 o'clock on the steps. That's Tuesday. So we're going to go out with um, a song from Mia Dyson, uh, an unusually short song for Mia Dyson, I'll have to say. And coming up next is... Asia Pacific Currents. Australia is a crime scene. It's unfinished business, this crime. People don't understand that it was a military exercise. It was military in the first fleet. It was Captain James Cook. It was Captain Arthur Phillip. Right through the history of Australia, it's a military exercise. Our people... You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.